Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. We often must remind ourselves, even though we know this is true, even though we know and affirm what the Bible says to be true, we have to sing these words to ourselves. We have to repeat these words to ourselves because so often we tend to trust in other things other than God, our hope and salvation. Often we turn to our own strength, our own ability to hide our shame and our sin, our own suit of fig leaves that we have sewn together. God alone is our hope, our refuge, and salvation. And I hope, as we consider His Word this morning, that this is what becomes evidently clear to all of us, so that we all the more eagerly cast ourselves upon Him as our hope. I would ask that you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 as we consider this this morning. You're turning there. I want to tell you briefly without getting into too much detail, the story of a pastor that um, I read about. I did not know this man, but I read about him and, and uh, his story earlier this fall. Many of you probably won't recognize the name Bubba Copeland just by my repeating it. Bubba was a pastor of First Baptist Church in a small town in Alabama. He is also the mayor of that same small town. And less than three months ago, Bubba Copeland took his own life. Bubba's story is sad and frankly sordid. And it came to a catastrophic end all within basically just a week. A reporter uncovered that this pastor led a double life online, expressing himself online as a transgender person taking risque photos of himself writing things that were frankly vile and perverse, often about children and women within his own community. And he'd apparently been doing this for some time, never anticipating, never expecting that it all would come crashing down in an instant. Yet when this double life was exposed, he first tried to hide, to downplay and cover up his shame. Then, he tried to shift the blame, declaring at a Wednesday night prayer meeting at his church that he had nothing to be sorry for, nothing to repent of, and that he had been the victim of an online attack. It was only two days after that that he would end up taking his own life. This is a tragic story that did not have to end this way. And I only bring it up because it shows so clearly the awful power of shame. You see, ultimately it wasn't his hidden lifestyle that led to his death. It wasn't the fact that that lifestyle was exposed that led to his death. Rather, it was his shame in being found out that drove him to despair. That's why I've titled this message, Awful Knowledge. See, in the Garden of Eden, after eating the fruit, as we're going to read about in just a moment, 
Adam and Eve indeed gained knowledge. Satan had promised them that if they would just eat the fruit, if they would break God's law, if they would disobey what God had commanded, that they would become wise, that they would gain a knowledge that they did not up until this point have. A knowledge of good and evil. They indeed gained a degree of knowledge that they did not have prior to that. Just as Satan had promised. But it was an awful knowledge. A knowledge that they and you and I, as well, when we come to acquire this knowledge, wish that we could unknow. A knowledge and awareness of shame. So my aim this morning in bringing up this story about this pastor and really in preaching this sermon is to show you that shame does not have to lead down a path of despair and hopelessness and ultimately self-destruction. The good news is that shame can be overcome. Our shame can be forgiven and erased. Bubba, although he was a pastor himself, could not believe that that was true for him when he was confronted with his own shame. But I want you to know it this morning. I want you to know it so far deep down in your bones that you never forget it. Because ultimately, we are all going to experience shame. We are all going to experience guilt over sin. Because until the Lord comes back and perfects us with glorified bodies that are free from the the curse that the world is under, we we will continue to sin. And if we are blood-bought Christians, when we sin, that sin is going to be accompanied by shame. But you see, while shame isn't anticipated, while it will inevitably attempt to hide and blame-shift, it can be and has been overcome. And so my prayer for you this morning as we gather together, as you at home watch online, my prayer for you is that whatever burden of shame you're carrying, for however long you've carried it, it may be that you have carried a burden of shame for decades. That you have secret, unconfessed sins that even those closest to you have no idea about. Whatever burden of shame you're carrying today, that you find freedom by God's grace to let it go. And to understand that through Jesus, your shame is no longer yours to carry. We'll see this as we begin here in Genesis chapter 3 and ultimately work our way all the way to the Last Supper on the night before Jesus was crucified. And so therefore, if you are able, I would ask that you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we read together Genesis 3, beginning in verse 6. There it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you have have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Says the word of the Lord, you may be seated. Let's once more bow together before the Lord in prayer. God, we come before you today acknowledging that all of us in here carry with us the burden of this awful knowledge of shame. In the same way that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened when they did what had been forbidden by you, so too, Lord, all of our eyes have been opened. We have come to know this dreadful, awful knowledge of having rebelled against you, broken your commandments, transgressed your law, and have come under your condemnation. But Lord, many of us in this room, indeed I hope most of us, have come through Jesus Christ to know the forgiveness and removal of that shame and guilt. I pray that for those who have not yet come to experience that, that today would be the day when their burden would be rolled away. That their shame and their guilt would be removed from them by your grace poured out to them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who need to be reminded this morning, even as Christians, even as followers of Jesus, that our sin is indeed forgiven. May that sweet reminder permeate our hearts and our souls so that we can walk out of this room lighter than when we walked in. Unburdened, as it were, by our shame and our guilt. And Lord, may we also be warned by recognizing what shame does, how it comes upon us and it causes us to try to hide behind our own self-righteousness, how it causes us to try to shift the blame to some other person. Lord, may we see that those are not avenues that we should take. May we mark and avoid those paths and run instead straight to the cross of Jesus when we find ourselves burdened by shame. It is in His sweet and shame-removing name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the verses that we have just read, we find the source of all of our shame and every other form of suffering. Ultimately, we can say that every bad thing that happens to us today has its roots right here in Eden. We're told that when Eve saw the tree, she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise, she ate, and Adam, who was with her, also ate. Satan had promised them that it would give them the knowledge of good and evil. But immediately they recognized, as soon as they took the fruit, and as soon as they ate, were told that the eyes of both were opened, and they realized too late that such knowledge was awful. 
It was not a knowledge, as we said last week, that moved them closer to God, but further away. A knowledge that made them more unlike God, more unrighteous, more unholy. They had become defiled through rebellion. And in that moment, Adam and Eve experienced something that they had never in their lives experienced before. Shame. Shame is that awful knowledge. Not just that there is wrong in the world, somewhere over there, away from me. Not just that evil exists, but that evil exists within me. That I have done wrong. That I am guilty before God. We all will experience shame to some degree or another. All of us probably have things in our lives that we are ashamed of. Some of you have recalled them to your mind already just in the first few minutes of this sermon this morning. Some of you have secrets that in all likelihood you will take to your graves, never uttering to another person, praying that no one ever finds them out. That shame can keep you up at night. It can make you cold and bitter toward other people. Even the people you love the most. It can cause you to shrink away from the church, to shrink away from your family, and even from God Himself. In Adam and Eve's response to this newly acquired awful knowledge, we can see several aspects of how shame behaves, what it does. First, we see shame isn't anticipated. It's not expected. As we said last week in his temptation, Satan offers them the pleasure without telling them the price. The price is often shame and guilt. And you never get to see this moment before you sin. Before you plunge into rebellion. Right? Now if we knew how we would feel after we sinned, before committing the sin, then it's unlikely that we would sin. If you were thinking about the hangover, you probably wouldn't drink. If you were thinking about the unwanted and unplanned pregnancy, you wouldn't participate in risky sexual behavior. If you were thinking about the jail time, you wouldn't commit fraud. If you were thinking about that overwhelming burden of shame, you wouldn't look at pornography. But you see, shame isn't anticipated. People don't expect it. And we're really silly in this regard when we think about it because we can commit the same sin 99 times. And we can experience the same shame and guilt after each time. Our soul sinks down into the very pit. We weep, we pray, we make promises, God, I will never do this again. Just forgive me, please, one more time. And yet, a few days later, perhaps the very next day, here we are again for round 100. We forget the shame and despair that accompanied the sin the last time. And we're just as surprised by it the hundredth time as we are the first. Satan wants us to have amnesia when it comes to our shame. You've heard probably that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Well, what does that make us then if we sin and sin... And we experience shame and guilt and remorse after each time. Yet, like a dog returning to its vomit, we return day after day to the same sin. 
We should expect the same consequences. We should expect shame as a direct consequence of our sin, yet we do not. And so we sin, we experience shame, and the cycle repeats itself over and over again. But what else does shame do? Shame comes to us, we're surprised by it, it isn't expected. Adam and Eve here clearly did not expect this to be the result of eating the fruit. They were expecting something delightful, something good. Remember, it says that Eve saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes, that it was good for food, and that it was desired to make one wise. But after they eat, they don't say, man, that was the tastiest fruit I ever had. That was so good. Let's have another round. No, they're surprised by shame. So it is with our sin. Satan tempts us to participate in something, showing us the pleasure without showing us the price. And we're surprised when the bill comes due. But shame is not, not only not anticipated, we also see in this passage that shame looks to hide. Shame looks to hide. The, once we experience shame, once we know that we are exposed, the last thing we want is for anyone else to know our shame. We don't want anyone else to know that we've messed up. And so, just like Adam and Eve, we hide. Adam and Eve's hiding actually occurs here in two different phases. Two different stages. First, they begin by hiding from one another. We're told that they sew fig leaves together because they realize that they are naked. That word naked is repeated over and over in this passage, much to some of the giggles of some of the children here in the congregation I heard earlier as I was reading it. But it's repeated over and over to to, uh, amplify their exposure here. See, when you think about this, you begin to wonder, well, well, what's the big deal? Because they're still the only people around. Right? It, it, it's not as if, you know, some of you uh, may have had the recurring nightmare. Uh, we're, we're told when you read some of the psychology books and different things that one of the popular and recurring nightmares is showing up to school or your place of work, you know, disrobed. And, and, and maybe you've had that same nightmare before, but... The, the terror of that nightmare is the fact that there's all those other people around. It's just Adam and Eve here. right? There's no other people in the garden at this point. They'd been together all of their lives. They had only known one another in their completely natural exposed state. And as the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and not ashamed. But here something has changed. What's changed? Well, it wasn't their bodies. They had the same bodies they had just a few moments before. There wasn't anything new on them. that they. There, there wasn't a new spot or blemish that they had to cover up that wasn't there before. The only thing that was different now was that they were ashamed. Sin had entered into the equation. And sin poisons how we see ourselves and how we see one another. It drives a wedge in between people. That's why it's such awful knowledge. It doesn't bring comfort and wisdom. It doesn't bring greater peace and harmony to relationships. It brings division, embarrassment, and resentment. 
There's a wedge now between husband and wife that did not exist before. And so they cover themselves in order to hide from one another. This is what sin and shame does. It separates us from one another. It makes us distrustful of one another. If we have wicked thoughts, lustful thoughts, selfish thoughts, we project those same thoughts onto other people. We assume that our spouse, our our friends, our co-workers have the same thoughts. And so we become more reserved, more withdrawn, more hidden from them. The world has recognized this. And the world has actually given us tools like sets of fig leaves to hide our shame. The greatest set of fig leaves that mankind has ever invented probably is residing in your pockets right now or on your pew beside you in your phone. We're able to lock our phone so that nobody can access them but us and we have to stare at our phone in order for our phone to unlock and give us access to it, right? It has to make sure it's you because nobody else needs to see what's on here. We get nervous. Somebody picks up our phone and starts looking through it. And there's even apps like Snapchat that's designed to delete messages and photos as soon as they are sent. Again, it is a fancy technological suit of fig leaves. The false security of hidden sin. And parents, let me just say this to you as a plea to you. It is not wise to allow your children to have apps that are designed for the sole purpose of allowing them to hide their shame. You are providing them with their very own set of fig leaves. You're saying, here you go. Cover up, honey. It doesn't matter if all the other kids are wearing fig leaves around. It doesn't do any good. It's only a way of hiding Shame. It's not dealing with the problem. It's not dealing with the sin. Don't give your children suits of fig leaves and think that you're promoting their righteousness. Know what they're looking at. Know what's there on their phones. And if there's apps that's designed to keep you from seeing those things, delete those apps. Children, I'm sorry, but you don't need suits of fig leaves. They don't promote righteousness. They only allow you to hide your sin, not deal with it. But it's not just our children. Let's all put ourselves to the test for a moment. What if your phone was suddenly hacked and all of your browsing history was sent to your contacts? Your parents, your spouse, your Sunday school teacher could all of a sudden see everything that you have seen. The videos that you have watched, the messages you have sent, or perhaps just the sheer amount of time that you've spent mindlessly browsing. Some of you are getting little beads of sweat just thinking about that idea. We want those things to stay hidden because we're ashamed. We know we've done wrong and we want to hide from one another. But not only do we hide from one another, we also hide from God. And this at its, at its heart is ultimately where shame comes from. This is the more significant of our hidings because it shows us that we instinctively know when we experience shame that there is a God and that we have transgressed His law. 
If, if that were not the case, if that were not the case, there would be no such thing as shame. Right? You see, shame is actually a, a very good argument for the existence of God. Because shame comes from the fact that we know that we are guilty. And how could we be guilty if there was not a God that saw and knew everything? That has, that has established His rules and commands for us to follow and to live by. And yet when we transgress them, we know and experience shame. It's indicative of an increasingly godless society, by the way, that the things that people used to do in private, hidden away from the crowds, are now becoming public. They're now displaying their shame openly because they are less and less concerned with the just retribution of a righteous God. That's what Adam and Eve do here. They, after they've covered themselves as best they could from one another's eyes, when they hear God, they hide from Him as well. And don't we do the exact same thing? When we are ashamed, guilty of our sin, what's the first thing that goes? Often it's our prayer time, Bible reading time. We withdraw from God when we are convicted of our sin. Our attendance at church starts to decline. It becomes more sporadic. Because we know that when we read the Bible, when we pray to God, when we attend church, our consciences are going to be pricked by our shame. And we don't want that exposure. We want to hide our shame. We don't want to be called out on it. We want to withdraw to the shadows, to hide behind the bushes. And so if it's been a while since you've consistently read your Bible, consistently prayed, or been faithfully involved with the church, it might be beneficial to evaluate whether or not there is some secret sin in your life that you need to repent of. Maybe you've been living this way for so long that you don't even remember what it was, but you need to come and ask God to reveal it to you so that you can confess it and repent and stop hiding from God. But not only does sin and shame hide or seek to hide, it also shifts the blame. We read through this, we see that once Adam and Eve are called out, once God exposes them for what they've done, and they see they've got nowhere else to hide, they start pointing fingers. Adam first blames Eve, and then Eve blames the serpent. And each one of them implicitly blames God. Adam actually explicitly blames God. He says, the wife God which you gave me, this woman that you made, remember where she came from, right? you made her, you gave her to me, God. She gave me this fruit. And Eve points to the serpent who we're told at the very beginning of this chapter was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent too was his creation. And so implicitly they're both shifting the blame one to the other and then both to God. When we get discovered in our sin, when hiding doesn't do the trick and we still get caught, we are so quick to point fingers. You know, we see this so often. It's actually comical whenever you start to see this in our society. One of the things I've always um, not really enjoyed watching, but, but uh, it's amusing, is whenever professional athletes get caught using steroids. And 
Every single one of them. I think there's maybe been one player that I can recall who just said, yeah, I messed up, I'm sorry. But all of them will say, well, my trainer gave me this, I didn't know what was in it. Or yeah, I, I took some bad advice from some doctors, I shouldn't have done this, it was a mistake, but it's really their fault. And, and whether it's professional athletes that get caught using steroids, whether it's politicians that get caught having an affair, whoever it is, whatever it is, they always blame shift. It's always someone else's fault. We learn this instinctively, even from a very early age. Children might say, well, everyone else is doing it. If you weren't so unreasonable, mom and dad, with your rules, I wouldn't break them. You don't know what it's like being a kid today. Or so-and-so dared me. Right? And the list goes on and on. It's always someone else's fault. But adults, we're good at this too. That guy, that guy cut me off. I'm under so much stress at work. The boss is being a real jerk, hammering down on me lately. I just don't have the time I need because of all these other requirements. I don't get paid enough. You never listen to me. You always do this. You never do that. I wouldn't have behaved in the way that I behaved if you hadn't have behaved that way first. This is so common for many of us that we don't even realize that we're doing it anymore. It's as natural to us as breathing. As soon as we experience the the first little pushback, we say, well, let's get defensive now. Let's shift the blame. We do anything to deflect attention away from our own fault. In In fact, I bet that some of you probably have a whole bucket Full of arguments that's lined up against your spouse or your parents or your children, your boss. A whole bucket full of arguments. It's your collateral. Just in case they ever call you out for something, you've got ammunition that you can throw right back in their faces. You can point the finger back at them, shift the blame, get yourself off the hook. It doesn't even matter if they're right. If you've legitimately messed up, We will always try to defend ourselves to shift the blame before we acknowledge our error and repent. Some of you need to repent today of storing up that ammo. Of of being resentful. Of preparing yourself for a future argument. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love does not blame shift. Love lays down your blame before the Lord. Resolve right now to never use it as a weapon. There are some of you young people who are perhaps preparing for marriage and are hoping perhaps within the next few years to be married. Resolve right now to deal with your sin in such a way that blame shifting does not occur between you and your spouse. That you do not store up arguments in self-defense against them. You may say, oh, I would never do that. I love them so much. Love will just get us through. Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. They had one bad day, right? One bad day. And Adam's saying, God, this woman that you gave me, it will happen. Make your resolutions right now, young people. Prepare yourself going into it. This will not be the case. Because ultimately, hiding and blame shifting They're not the way to deal with sin and with shame. This awful knowledge. 
They may help alleviate the internal struggle. We, be, we may become, in our own, or our own eyes, self-righteous. Adam and Eve probably thought they'd done a pretty good job sewing together fig leaves. But they were silly and sadly mistaken. And so were we. So are we if we try to hide and blame shift. Pretty soon there's more sin, more shame, until we're walking around with a burden far too great for us to bear. So what's the solution? The good news for us is that shame can be overcome. Amen. How is that? Our shame is overcome by recognizing that Jesus Christ took all of our shame on himself. Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Jesus was stripped and put on full display. There on the cross, he took our sin, our shame. He made our shame his own. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So dear Christian, your shame, whatever wicked thing that you've done, whatever wicked thing that you've said, whatever wicked thing that you've thought, Jesus took it on himself. He took it on himself. He became that sin for us. And in turn, he gives us his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he does not see someone who needs to hide from his presence. He sees the righteousness of his dear and beloved son. That's what Jesus has done for us. He took our shame so that we would not have to bear it. So that for everyone who is in Jesus Christ, when you are reminded of your sin, when you are reminded of your shame, turn your eyes on Jesus. Remind yourself of the cross because that's where your shame went to die. So what if your secret thoughts are exposed then? So what if your phone history is displayed to everyone? As a Christian, you can say, Jesus has died for that. The payment has already been made. Jesus took that. He experienced the shame on my behalf that was mine. You can know that you are forgiven. The shame of our sin ought to send us fleeing to Jesus. Not hiding, not blame shifting. Adam and Eve, the very first thing they should have done is fled to the Father said, oh God, we have sinned against you. We have broken your commandment. We have eaten the fruit that you told us not to. We can know that and still hide and shift the blame. You may say to me, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how awful my sin is, how great my shame and guilt is. And you're right, I don't, but God does. He already knows it. He knew it before you were ever born. He knew it before Jesus ever came into the world as a human being. And He still came. Knowing what you would do, knowing what you would say, knowing what you would think. Your most disgusting, vile, heinous thoughts. They were before God from eternity past and He still said, I'm going to send my Son to die for those. So I don't care. I don't care what you've done. Because the payment has already been made. Forgiveness has already been extended. If Bubba Copeland would have turned in repentance to the Lord, he would have found grace and mercy. 
Because I know that I have found grace and mercy. And I in my sin am no better than He. Jesus made this clear with His disciples during the Last Supper. When He told them, as they were gathered together there in the room, that He was going to give His own body broken for them. But what's incredible is is there in that moment, in that room, Jesus uses some very specific words with His disciples. Do you remember what they are? What What words He uses to invite them to the table and by extension to invite us to the table? The table of His redemption? I'll give you a hint. We've already read those words today. As we conclude this morning, I want to show you a brief video. This is from... Uh, Lincoln Duncan at T4G in 2018 where he explains what's going on here at the Last Supper with Jesus' words. Hopefully this will play for us. If not, I'll read you the quote, but, but I think it's better coming from him. So just take a listen to this. And on the Lord's day, when you come to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper, I want you to hear some words that Jesus says to you. Just so you'll know this. You come to the table and he says to you, here's what I want you to do. Take and eat. Oh, what's going on there? The last time I heard those words, things didn't work out so well. She took and she ate. And Jesus says, watch this, Satan. Take and eat. This is my body given for you. So small a thing it seemed, taking that fruit. So hard in undoing. It took God sending his son into the world and to the cross before take and eat became verbs of salvation. And that is what enables you to love your neighbor. Amen. Amen. Jesus has come to us. He has invited us to take and eat, not of a forbidden fruit, but of Himself. And in so doing, He has upended and overturned what Satan sought to accomplish through rebellion. So whatever you have done, whatever rebellion you have against God, whatever shame you are carrying, Jesus says, come to Me, take and eat. My body given for you. The invitation is open for all of you this morning. Whatever you have done, whatever shame you are carrying, Jesus says, I've got something better for you. Come to me. Come to me. You can be free of your shame. You do not have to carry it out these doors. You may have carried it in. You don't have to leave with it. You can leave it right here because Jesus has already paid for it. Don't lament the decisions you made long ago. Don't be burdened by that weight any longer. It is nailed to the cross. And you can bear it no more. Confess it. Repent of it. 
and then trust that Jesus has forgiven you of it. If you're at home watching, you can kneel right beside your couch, beside your chair. If you haven't even got out of your bed yet, you can kneel right there in the floor. Confess your sin. Confess the shame that you have incurred. Say, Lord, it's yours. Take it from me. Because of the blood of Jesus shed for that sin. Be free from your shame. Or simply rejoice as a believer that that God has given you that freedom. That you don't need fig leaves and self-righteousness any longer. You don't need to blame shift. You don't need to hide. Because God has taken your sin from you. Thank God for the forgiveness that you have from all of those things. Let's pray. God, we come before you today acknowledging the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. What He has done for us in taking our sin and our shame upon Himself. Not so that we could hide it better. Not so that we could deflect blame from ourselves. But Lord, so that we could be free from it. So that it could be taken from us. Ours to bear no longer. Lord, I pray that all of us would walk out of this room knowing that our sin is forgiven, that our shame is removed. Lord, don't let anyone leave here hanging on to that shame, hanging on to that guilt, hanging on to that sorrow over sin. Lord, let them know that through the shed blood of Jesus, they are completely cleansed, completely righteous, because it is His righteousness that they are now clothed in. Lord, how joyfully, how joyfully we sing praises to the name of your Son for what he has done for us in this regard. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.